Welcome to 42 Answers from Founders for Founders, a podcast series brought to you by Project A Ventures, the operational VC. My name is Rainer Berak, operating partner at Project A, and our guest today is Steffen Kiedel. Welcome. Hi, Rainer. In this podcast, we talk to great founders and we ask them the same set of questions in the domains that we think matter tremendously for building successful companies. And these are tech, growth, people, data, and ESG. Steffen, who are you, what do you do, and why do you do it? All right, so hi again, Rainer. Um, I'm Steffen, I'm the co-founder of Superlist, and I'm also the CEO of Superlist. So that's that's what I do, and why do I do it? Well, it's I like productivity. I've been working in the productivity space before, and I think that tasks and project management, so the space that we are in, it's not really solved yet. And we're trying to do it better than the rest or better than the, the tools that are currently available on the market. Tell us a little bit more about Superlist. I know you, you were one of the founders of Wunderlist before. So is it, uh, is, it, is it the same with the new name? It's, well, it's, it's, it's also in, in a productivity field, but it's not the same. Um, Superlist, yes, it is a productivity app. But we're focused on teams. We're trying to help teams to better organize their work. And we have found that most of the tools that are out there, their, their core user is uh, project managers. But if, if you look at how teams are composed, usually like 95 or 90, 95% of the people working in teams, they're just individual contributor. And they're forced to work with tools that are not made for them. And that's something that we want to change. So what we're looking at is... Um, a great experience for the individual contributors so that you have great, greater or, or larger adoption throughout teams. And um, that requires a focus on simplicity, on flexibility, integration with other tools, but also new ways of collaborating, new ways of communicating. So a bunch of things that we're looking at. So who's your target group? Will it, will it be like the individuals or will it be uh, companies if you build that for teams? It's, it's teams. So focus group is teams um, anywhere between, let's say, small scale teams, five to 20 people, ideally at the beginning. Uh, but we know that um, like in those teams, it is the individuals that, that count. Uh, so it's, I, I know it's, it's a somewhat unclear answer is our, our target are teams um, with the focus on the individual people uh, those teams are made up of. Uh, that will make the question about product-led growth that will come in a, in a bit yeah. uh, certainly a, a, a very interesting one. <laughs> Thank you for that. Now let's get started. People. If you would start a company today, what would be your first five hires? So we did start the company not even two years ago. And the first hires that we had were um, developers and designers. And I would do the same thing. I would hire two devs, two designers, and one HR expert. And were these exactly your first five hires? For for dev and design, yes. Uh, we didn't hire an HR expert and we're still looking for one. Uh, any specific reason? Was it just harder to find or, um, we, or you didn't prioritize it the same we, way? We didn't prioritize it in the beginning, um, but I, I think it's it's it, it's obvious that it, it's becoming more and more important um, as, as a remote company when it comes to culture, when it comes to recruiting, when it comes to building up structures it it's just something that i think uh, would have been helpful um and yeah it's, it's one of the things that I, I probably would do differently now what are the hardest hires today 
every hire. <laughs> it's probably easier to reverse the question of are they are easy hires? And, and I don't think they are. Um, in our experience so far, I mean, we, we have been focused on dev and design, both are competitive markets. Personally, I've, I found um, designers to be even more difficult to recruit because it's it's somewhat more difficult to really identify how good they, they actually are, how structured, how uh, self-sufficient they, they, they can work or they're able to work. But all in all, um, every hire is, uh, is, is challenging. How do you measure employee satisfaction? <clears throat> well, we are still early on in the process, so we, we don't systematically measure it. Uh, we have regular one-on-ones with our teams. We, for important things, we take notes when it's about um, stuff that we're uh, um, committing to or, or things that we really expect our, our people to do. Um, and towards the end of the year, we also do year-end surveys, but um, as, as I said, in a non-systematic way. And in, in my old company, uh, we did work with Pecan, so a really employee satisfaction measurement tool. And that, that worked well at the beginning, but it wore out over time. So after a few months, um, the, the insights were not as um, as new or as fresh as they as they were at the beginning. So I, to, to be honest, I don't know how we're going to do it in the future. Okay. How do you measure employee performance? Well, employee performance, it's a little bit similar to my, my answer about um, employee satisfaction. It's we are still early on. We're a team of 20 people, including us founders. So we still work together very closely and have a pretty good grasp on what, what individuals are doing. But since we're growing, we're starting to build out more uh, more elaborate processes. So we're, we're implementing first management structures, a second tier management level. And um, with that, we're becoming more official when it, when it comes to things like goal setting for the in individuals and then also measuring whether those goals have been achieved, um, but not in an OKR fashion or not, not following one decisive process yet. What's your favorite type of org chart? How would you structure an organization? <laughs> the from experience, I know that org charts they're only they're only good if you change them on a regular basis. I, I think no, no matter with what kind of org chart you're doing, after a certain amount of time, you need to disrupt the whole system because otherwise, people become complacent and and it's 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 becoming too too comfortable for everybody. The state that we're in, we're pre-product. That means everything is structured around product. Product is core and center of everything that we're doing. And, and you find that in our org chart, you find that in, in the way, um, if, if you only look at the, the kind of people that we've hired so far, it's purely dev and design, nothing else. Um, so it's a representation of the phase that we're in. Um, and I assume or I expect that, that we're building up additional functionalities now. And, and that also means we need a little bit more management functionalities around marketing, around communication and, and these aspects. But for now, it's everything is around product. What's your approach to culture? Culture is the one of the most important things. And I, it, it's also one of the most abstract things. So it's, it's, it's kind of hard to really describe the, the actual approach. To me, what it comes down is um, culture is, is essentially it's a representation of, of your values because the, the only way to live culture is 
if you can live it. It's, it's nothing that you can artificially impose on a company. And if I look at our founding team, I think we, we share most of our values and um, we, we, tr we paid a lot of attention when we made our first hires to ensure that they, they also share our values, that they, that they represent what's, what we want the first batch of employees to represent. Uh, so that, that we have multipliers of how we think the company should function in the future. And, and those are the multipliers that are now onboarding sort of the, the second generation of employees. And um, so that, that, that's a, a broad approach of, of how we tackled it. But I already mentioned um, in, in your first question that to me, one of the initial hires nowadays would be an HR expert. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I think it is important to have somebody who is really concerned about culture and about how, how, you can, how you can measure, how you can implement culture and how you can maintain culture with, within a, a company. Remote first or office first? I guess remote as far as I understand. Yeah, it's, it's pretty simple. We don't even have an office, so we are purely remote. But is that is that um, you want it that way and you want to keep it that way and and maybe a few words why you wanted to do it? Well, we Superlist was was started in the midst of the in the midst of COVID. Um, so we were in a lockdown when we started um, the company. One of my co-founders, he's based in Seattle. So from from design, we're not going to be a Berlin only company. That's that's impossible. What we're obviously looking at is, or, or generally remote has lots of pros and some cons as well. So we're, we're as we're growing, we're just trying to um, get a, a good handle on do the, do the, um, do the efficiencies still out, outweigh the, um, the detriments of not being in, in, in the same place. And right now of the, still the, the phase that we're in, we we have lots of benefits of, of being remote and especially with COVID now hopefully coming to an end um, i think it's is well possible to work re remotely meet on a regular basis with parts of a team or the whole company and and thus being able to build a, a culture and social connections as well tech what you call superlist a tech company Yes and no. Um, obviously, we're, we're in the tech sector. We're living in, in a tech bubble, but I would consider us to be more of a product company. Um, and this product, of course, tech, tech is an integral part of product, uh, but we're not tech-led. We're, we're not inventing something amazingly new. We're, we're not a, an artificial intelligence company, uh, but we are a task manager, and task management has been around for a while. Um, so product is core. Still, we have a modern tech stack. Uh, we're utilizing Flutter, um, which, which is a framework that, that has been introduced by Google. We're pushing the boundaries of Flutter. So we're, we're doing really cool stuff across all platforms. Um, yeah, st still, I would say we're, we're product driven. So if you would say product or development, who's in the lead? It's definitely product. Um, the, yeah. Product is leading what we're doing and development is, is putting it into code. So putting it into something tangible. And um, I mean, both need to go hand in hand. A product defines what we're working on and essentially 
death is defining the speed at which we can move. So both are important. The lead though is product. Who decides what to develop next from building the roadmap to actual features and, and, and next developments? That's that's currently changing as, as we're becoming more and more mature. At the beginning, it was us as a leadership team. We discussed a lot. We we or we needed to discuss a lot in, in order to align our vision of the company, in order to align what we want to or where we want to take the company. And now more and more, it's our CPO who's taking care of the product roadmap. Um, and he's he's making suggestions or he's telling us what he wants to work on, what he thinks we should be working on. And then we we try to like set broad goals and then pass it on to the individual teams to figure out how to actually implement it. Um, and that's that's how we're tackling it. Then there's, there's one more aspect, uh, since we are pre-products uh, that, that also introduces not necessarily a complexity, but we are lacking data. Uh, so oftentimes we need to have discussions around things that we want to do, what we think we should should be doing, because it's it's to a certain degree based on gut, um, and that needs discussion or alignment. Anything to add about the decision process? N not Not really. It's... Um, we, we want to become more and more rational about how we're deciding things. And I think we're, we're doing that um, because now this, this alignment phase, this young and wild phase, is, it's not over yet, uh, but we're um, entering a state where, where we actually generate data and where, where, where it's hopefully becoming easier to um, define what the next steps are. What's your take on product-led growth? Well, It is, um, it's, it's super important uh, because product-led essentially means that you have a product that is providing value. That's, to me, that's, that's the definition of, of product-led. And only if you have a product that creates value, that provides value to users, only then will they recommend it to their friends, to their colleagues, to their whoever they're in contact with. And therefore, product-led is, is super important. And I don't believe that in the future we're going to see many top-down products anymore. Um, so that's that's a trend that's that's definitely ending. However, I would never, or I would be always cautious not to not to assume that product-led means that you're never going to spend anything on, on marketing or sales. Um, that's, that's, to me, is not the case. It just means that you you don't do it initially and you only do it once, once you figure out that your product does, does provide value. Which role does design play at Superlist? Almost a repetition of what I said before. Design is is core and center of what we're doing. It's it's the decisive role uh, because UI and UX is what makes product experience. And um, like like I said, Superlist is not reinventing a category. The category of, of project and task management already exists. So all we're trying to do is improve the experience of it and that's ui and ux would you ever outsource software development in general no because the the way something is built into code has a huge Im uh, impact on the the overall product experience or user experience so we want to keep that in-house we want to control it but we do work with freelancers we do work with um 
partially agencies, and that is mostly to to get like an outside perspective on certain things that, that we're tackling or to get additional capabilities in. Um, but we we don't completely outsource, I don't know, iOS development or our iOS app that, that we wouldn't do. Growth. If you think about the complete funnel, brand, marketing, sales, customer success, do you have all these functions or do you plan on having all these functions at some point? Eventually, I, I think we will have them. At the moment, we don't have them yet. Um, what we do have is brand. That is that is one of the one of the pillars that was essentially established from from the very early days on. And we're currently in the process of building up marketing in the sense of go to market functions. Um, customer success will will follow, but that's that's something where where I'm more confident that we can do it internally with the resources that we currently have. And then sales is the last one that we're going to be thinking about once we once we have a validated product market fit. Who, if you think about this, all these functions across the funnel, um, who would you put into the lead um, and how would you uh, create the structure among them? Well, um, the, the way we're starting to build it up now is that marketing is, is in the lead of things. Um, and marketing in the sense of, uh, like I said before, to us, the most important thing right now is to figure out how well does Superlist um, help people solve existing problems? Um, and um, that means initially we need to think about onboarding a few amount of users. There, it's, it's about feedback loops. It's about setting up tooling and all of these things. And that's that, that to me is that, that's what marketing currently is. In the future, we I, we will separate out these functions and there's there's different ways how you can organize a marketing team um it's, it's probably going to be somewhere along the lines of differentiating the acquisition funnel from the retention or engagement funnel and then uh, finally monetization but that's honestly to be seen and probably also it's, it's going to change over time companies who do have these different functions uh sometimes struggle with them working in silos And whenever things go bad, the revenue doesn't come in, they start to blame each other. Like uh, sales says the, the leads weren't good and marketing says that sales is not good in converting them, etc. Any idea of how to how to solve that? Only a theoretical idea, but I, I don't know if it's going to work. Uh, so th there are two aspects that I think are important. And one comes back to, or the, the main aspect is around culture. Um, so... Up until now, we have a sort of no blame culture throughout Superlist. Um, obviously, there's there's stuff going wrong, and um, we we don't always make the right decisions. But we try not to blame one another, but instead help and or learn from from our mistakes. I I know it it it, it it's it sounds probably most companies would would claim to do that, but I think it's it's really that's the essence of everything. And then the the other aspect, and that's that's only going to be possible once we are still a relatively small team, is if you have all the various marketing functions under one umbrella, you have one person who is ultimately responsible for it, it's going to be that person's job to ensure that within the different divisions or teams throughout marketing, that those rivalries are not, not coming down to blame. You mentioned the importance of brand for you um, a little bit earlier. Um, can you elaborate on that? Because actually we see a lot of uh, 
tech or product companies um, that, that don't put so much emphasis on that? Why is it so important for you? Because brand is part of the experience. It's it's the one thing that people, or it's the one thing that helps you differentiate from, from other tools that are out there. And um, I think brand is also important because in, in order to build up a brand, you need to know what you want to build. And then the, the, the way to build up the brand is, is essentially you have skilled people who are capable of translating your ideas or your vision of the product into tangible assets, into stories that that make sense and that evoke emotions in 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 users. And the the ability of storytelling and the ability of being emotional, I think that's that's super important when you're building up a company. So how did you approach brands so far and what, yeah, what's your what's your approach there? Well the, the approach that we have is that, that we have a clear understanding of where we want to take the product or where, where we want to take the company and, and what problem we actually want to solve. And um, then we had lots of discussions around what type of users do we want to get in and, and what, what, what kind of values should, uh, should our brand represent. And then um, we, we trialed and errored a lot. Um, so we, we had brand designers or general designers help us come up with different visuals and we figured out, do they feel, right or not do they feel too technical do they feel too polished um like is is that really the spirit of the, of the product that we want to um get into the market and is that the the, the kind of emotion that we want to evoke in in our user base and that's that's how we approach it so a, a combination of great design skills and uh, the ability of, of formulate where we want to take the company Which marketing channels do you think you will use once your product is out? And, and, and why do you think uh, are these the right ones? So um, in, in terms of marketing, once we're out, I think Twitter, LinkedIn, Reddit, is uh, th those are going to be the, the initial marketing channels, channels that we're building upon in combination with Slack or with, with a Slack community. Um, and that's going to get us through... Um, our complete beta phase. Um, and once we're launching, I can't really give you the answer right now because it's 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 one of these aspects that we need to figure out through um, through our, our beta phase to to really define who who are the sticky users. And then eventually, once once we identify the the most sticky users, we are also going to be able to identify how can we actually reach them. Where where what platform should we go to in order to communicate with them? Is performance marketing dead or dying anytime soon? Um, I I was I, I'm I, I'm not an expert in, in performance marketing. So um, w whether it's dying or not, um, I worked for AdBlock Plus before, uh, so I, so I would say general um, targeted marketing. If it's if it's the only way that that you can marketize your product, or if it's the only differentiator for your product, then Yes, it's it's dying, and hopefully it's dying soon. Um, because I, I think products they, they need marketing. They also need paid marketing, but they need a lot more than that. It, it can only be one of the pillars in your marketing mix, but it, it should not be the one decisive pillar uh, when you, when you're building up a company, at least in in the early phases. And also um, take that with a grain of salt because I, I never worked for for any e-commerce startups. It, I was always in more product-led companies. You don't have salespeople yet, correct? 
that's that's right. We we don't have them yet. I think we're going to have them in the future, but future for us is is probably post launch. Where do you think can you find good digital savvy salespeople? Oh, <laughs> I don't know yet. And it's it's frankly it's it's we're we're going to tackle it once once we once we get to the point. Right now we're we're trying to find so many other good good people that um sales i'm i'm happy if we can postpone sales for a little bit data how does data make superlist successful not yet uh, to be honest because we don't have a product out um we we are currently setting up our data funnel so that, that we data funnel in, in, in a sense of really measuring um what's uh, what our bidder users are doing with within the product but what we've been using extensively is, is is user research. Uh, so we've conducted lots of interviews um, in, in order to figure out or to validate our hypothesis at the beginning of, of the company journey. And we're continuously doing that with personal onboardings uh, for new users, users at the moment. So this is sort of the, the, the kind of validation that we're getting in and that we're also communicating to the whole product team. And um, the more we grow, the more structure we're going to use um, data in, in order to inform what we're doing next. Which functional areas do you think should be supported by a data team? Standard is obviously marketing if you follow a performance approach. Um, what, what's your view for the future here? Which, which teams should be supported by the data people? Well, everybody should be supported by data, but most most notably, it should be um, the, the various product functions. Um, so data to me should be, or product should be driven by hypothesis and you should validate or falsify your hypothesis. And that's that's only possible through data. Um, so data supports all functions within product. Um, but I think, or at least the, the, the way we're setting it up now is that the data lives within marketing. Um, whether that's that's scalable or the best idea, I don't know, but that's 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 simply how we're how we're setting it up, um, in in order to have like the, the responsible function around ensuring that we're measuring things and ensuring that we're doing things in a data consistent way. That this is not part of the the core, like it it should live outside of of design and product. I think. And you are hiring that field at the moment, right? We are starting to hire in that field. So if, if there is anybody listening um, who's a great data analyst and is um, is capable of setting up data structures or is, is interested in, in that, um, please ping me. Same goes for if, if someone is super experienced with HR and culture, uh, we're looking for those people as well. So ping me if, if that is you. All right. The data team, do you think they should uh, structurally answer specific questions or rather explore data that is available and hunt and find opportunities? Um, a, a mixture of both. Um, I, I think the, the specific questions, they need to be answered because products, like I said before, products should be hypothesis driven and that means they have specific questions. However, um, when, when we are hiring, we're, we're trying to get senior people on board and I would trust on, on their suggestions on like what a good balance is and, and how much value we can get out of random data samples. Um, I, I'm open for both, but I know that hypothesis-driven development, that, that is going to be important. 
how can you ensure that people do what the data recommend instead of just looking at it, ignoring it, and doing what they want? I can't ensure it. Um, it's or it, it's, it's going to be really difficult to really to to ensure to force people to follow whatever data says. So I I think the the way to get acceptance for data is if um, the right questions are being asked and if if the product team or whoever is receiving the data the data at the end if they're involved in formulating those questions and then ideally data should speak for itself uh, so data data should be um, should be clear enough that that it's obvious what next steps are or what what kind of interpretation you can draw from or conclusions you can draw from from the insights you're you're getting um, which tools and infrastructure do you use in that field? Um, we are starting with Mixpanel, um, probably setting up Segment as well, and then we're looking for or we're looking into a company that that is called Weld. Uh, they're they're offering data engineering and data pipelining. And um, the the last tool that we're using is is Dovetail, and that's that's been really important. That's more a user research tool or a, a customer research tool. Um, for the on, uh, in-person onboardings and interviews that we've conducted. What do you think, which, which roles will you in the future have in your data team and, and, and how would that be structured? I mean, here you have, again, the side that is usually more on the analytics side than some engineers, et cetera. How, how would you put that together? Um, the, the reason why we're looking at Weld, uh, the, the, the startup that I was mentioning, is because... If it works out that, uh, or, or if, if their solution works out, then we are not going to need data engineers. Um, that means they would take care of the engineering side. So we can really focus on the analytics side or in, on the insights generation side. And that is that is something that I would prefer. And hopefully it's, it's working out because I, I know from my past company how difficult it is to, to find and hire data engineers and then also set up everything internally. Where is the or will the data team be located in your organization? Who will who would the 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 person leading the data team report to? Initially, it will be part of the the marketing function, and and therefore, currently we don't have a VP marketing or a CMO, so they will report to me until we have um, the the right marketing leader. Okay, GDPR is it a struggle or an opportunity? It's um, being a German company is not really a question. It's of course it would be simpler without it, but we we have to obey by it. We have to go by the rules, and I think it's a possibility of making it an opportunity um, of of being GDPR compliant and therefore having the possibility of of working together with with German or European companies that some US players cannot work with. Environmental, social, and governance. Why didn't you, instead of Superlist, start an ESG company? It's it's a funny question. I've, I've um, never really thought about it. And I think one of the reasons is that starting Superlist, it, it was not on my, on my agenda. So I, I didn't set out and spend three months thinking about startup ideas and then eventually coming down to Superlist. But Superlist was more of a... I don't want to say it was an accident, but it was born by my own frustration with existing tools. And then we got together as a team and we started discussing how a tool should look like. And that eventually 
became more serious than we anticipated and that turned turned into Superlist. So I, I didn't actively look for startup ideas and, and therefore never never really considered um, what what type of company we should build. What does Superlist do in order to help our environment? Definitely not enough. Um, so we, we, we don't we don't actively help the environment. Um, I think being remote, not having offices, limiting that the amount of travel that we are doing, that is currently um, our, um, yeah, it, it's not the aid for the environment, but at least we're, we're trying to not to damage it additionally. Um, going forward, I, I know that things or other things are going to be important as well, um, like device policies or travel policies for, for travels within Europe. So these are the things that we're looking at. And um, honestly, I can't even tell you we're using Hetzna as um, as, as our server infrastructure. I, I can't even tell you whether they are very ESG or very um, environmental or not. If you think about the social aspects, which which role do they play in the way you run your business? They, well, to me personally, the social plays a huge role, and and I think that is that is translating into how we are running the company and and what kind of people we're we're hiring uh, to be part of Superlist. Um, so social to me is important. Social to to my co-founders is important, and one of our values is integrity. So that's that's sort of that somehow social like it has different nuances but it's it's, it's essentially it's, it's about being a good citizen and being a good citizen does not end with your co-workers it, it actually expands it's it's about how you're treating people in general um and and how you're caring for people in general and i i think that this really is ingrained in our in our dna given the the way that we live our lives individually um and in in that sense it's it, it's not necessarily easy, but it's it's more. I I think our our stuff believes us that um, social is not just like this this thing that looks good or or sounds good. And it, um, I, I I have this 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 kind of provocative um thing that that I usually look at um because a lot of a lot of companies they think they're social if they're donating money. Um, and then, yes, awesome. They tweet about it. They have LinkedIn posts about it. Um, but I, I, I think what's what's worthwhile is, is actually looking at how companies or how much effort companies are investing in order to forego paying taxes. Um, and especially if, if you're based in, in Germany or in one of the Western countries, um, I, I find that is usually a signal of how seriously companies take social responsibilities. Because if, if you're going all the lengths that are possible to avoid paying taxes, I I don't believe that that you really can be social even if you're donating money afterwards. Last, within ESG, governance is usually the one that um, is, is the hardest to, to grasp. Uh, any clear criteria that you follow here? No. To be honest, um, we, we have very... We, we don't really have lots of policies in place. Um, we, I, I would find it hard to define what's, what governments really is in, in, in terms of like, when is it, when is it positive? When is it negative? Um, the, the only experience that, that we have made is that we currently close a funding round 
Now our new investor is called Equity Ventures from, from Sweden. And um, they're investing out of a funds uh, where they guaranteed us that there's no, um, there's only sort of good investors. Uh, so there, there's, there's um, they didn't take monies from the Saudis or from Russia or from China or like no, no dictatorship money essentially. And that had a positive impact when we were communicating it to, to our team. And I didn't expect it to be that way. So I was, I was kind of surprised that it seems to play a more important role than we, we usually think. Uh, important point and leads to the next question. Uh, do you think a focus on ESG can actually help getting funding or would investors rather see it as a deflection from maximizing revenue? Well, you're an investor. It's probably a question that you need to ask yourself. Um, all in all, I, th I think the, the topic is becoming more important, but I still think that when, when it really comes to decision-making, investors don't care about it at all. Uh, I think what they're prioritizing is revenues or profits. And I've, I've yet to see a, a company um, out, outside of like the, the, the nonprofits. But I've, I've yet to see a company where an investor is fine with not making more revenue because the company says, well, we're, we're taking more time to hire FEMA employees and, and it's difficult to find them. So we just have a vacancy and, and that vacancy is open for a longer period of time. And that impedes the performance of the company. I, I don't think there's general acceptance. And it, it also, like when you're, when you're looking at quarterly statements that the companies are giving out um, stock markets don't react to the equal composition of the boards. They react to revenues, profits, and growth numbers. You don't yet have an ESG office or anything similar at Superlist, given your size, I guess. No, no, we don't. Um, would, could you imagine having that position in the future? Generally, yes, but, but, To, to be honest, ESG to me is, is a little bit vague. Um, so if, if we go in that direction, it, it will need to be specified as the focus mostly around like and more environmental policies. Is it, is it to ensure that we have um, uh, that, that, we're, that we're equal, um, equal opportunity employ, employer or just having an ESG officer to me would be I would always ask myself, well, what, what's what's really the purpose and what is then the, the empowerment of the person? And that needs to be clarified first. If it if it would have the focus that you just mentioned, like foremost on, on environmental topics, uh, the, the social aspects that you mentioned, um, where would you put something like that in the organization? Would, would that sit with HR or be like reporting to the CEO? Where, where would you see that sitting? Well, hiring would need to be part of the uh, part of the HR function, but then again, it, it only works if it's um, if if you carry it through and if, if you're willing to incentivize people by um, by finding exactly the, the kind of profiles that you want to find. Uh, when when it comes to the more environmental aspects, I actually don't know. I'm not not sure um, if it's rather. The back end, um, like our, our server infrastructure, where we can save the most, or whether it's travel policies where you can save the most, I, I would need to look into it. The last three questions. 
which one is the one podcast all founders should listen to? I um I, I don't have that that one podcast to go to. What I really like is are any sort of TED Talks. Um, and I, I don't think it matters what you're looking at. And predominantly because they're no matter what what their story is, they're amazing at storytelling. And even if they talk about the, the seemingly or on the surface potentially most boring topic, they package it in a way that that it's always inspiring and always you always want to listen to that. And I think that's 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 the thing too. If we learned more of that, specifically in Europe, that the storytelling, this ability of um, shaping a, a story that becomes fascinating, that's something that we all need. What are your top two pieces of advice for early stage founders? The well, my most important thing in life actually is that um, even though we're we're starting up a company and uh, and and we're we're living for it, it's still it comes down to it, it's still just a job. Um, and I, I always had friends and family at the site uh, that were outside of a tech bubble. And I find that is extremely important for everyone who's who's entering this craziness of, of, of startups or creating your own company, that you do have something aside um, so that work does not become the ultimate measure of success, whether you as a person are, are worthwhile or successful or not. Uh, there, there needs to be something um, that is that is independent from your economic success. And then the the second one um, is is essentially that the majority of um, of reason whether you're successful or not, it, it's going to come down to luck. Um, so you you can work super hard, and most people do. Um, whether you're you're failing or whether you're succeeding. Um, it, it does not only have to do, or to a large degree, it does not have to do with you being better or smarter or faster. It has to do with you being at the right position, meeting the right people. So essentially you being lucky. Last question, <clears throat> who are the two other founders I should ask this set of questions and you will make an introduction for me? Till Fida, um, he's the CEO and, and founder of IO. That's that's my last company or the company that I worked with last. And then um, Otto Söderlund, um, he's the founder and CEO of Speechly. Um, it's a cherry investment company, but they're they're doing pretty cool things. And and Otto is a great person as well. Thank you so much. Then I'm a lot looking forward to these introductions. Uh, Stefan, thanks a lot for sharing your insights. Um, I hope it and I trust it was interesting for the audience and hope for you to listen in next week again. Bye bye. Thanks very much. Bye. Hello, podcast listeners. We have some exciting news for you. Our Project A Knowledge Conference is back and happening on October 7th at Kultur Brauerei in Berlin. If you want to get to the heart of the European startup ecosystem and connect with founders, leading investors and digital experts, Join us for a whole day of knowledge sharing and networking, where experts from every area of digital operations will share their insights and best practices. This year, we're bringing you an amazing speaker lineup, including Christian Hacker, co-founder and CEO at Trade Republic, Lubomila Jordanova, co-founder and CEO at Plan A, and Philip Glockler and Philip Klockner, co-hosts of the Doppelganger Tech Talk podcast. Apply for a free ticket now or purchase one directly from our website. 
knowledge-conference.project-a.com. 